This is a 980 CKNW podcast. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. It's my pleasure, as always, to be with you. I am joined in studio this evening by Megan Gilron. She is an intimacy coordinator in the film and TV industry post the Me Too movement. Thank you so much for joining me in studio, Megan. Thank you so much for having me, Maureen. You're welcome. What an interesting job. And should you need any actresses, I happen to have a little background here. In this. I, will, I will let the casting directors know. <laughs> Please do. I'm trying to get discovered. It's been a long effort. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so quite interesting work, all kidding aside. Um, so you actually educate. Um, well, tell me exactly uh, what you, what it is that you do. Yeah, you bet. I mean, the uh, the role itself was built out of the need for a better policy and better practices and protocol um, when handling intimate scenes on, on screen or also on stage because um, some of the founders, so I'll name Siobhan Richardson, who's a Canadian uh, uh, direct, uh, director in Canada. Um, and then there's Tonya Sina and Alicia Rodas, who a lot of people may have heard of. Uh, they started Intimacy Directors International. Um, and the role is... Uh, an advocate for the actors as well as a choreographer uh, choreographer for um, intimate scenes, sex scenes, nudity, implied um, domestic violence, simulated sex, um, any simulated um, intimacy with younger actors as well. Um, and that need came out of uh, sort of the same idea where for a stunt coordinator, we have stunts that are not you know, someone's not really dying or really being stabbed or punched. Um, you have someone creating that. And so we needed the same for simulated intimacy. Um, and also someone to check in with the actors, check in that they're doing okay, that their mental health um, is doing okay, um, and that they're consenting to everything and that we can neg- navigate their personal boundaries when creating the scene. You've kind of answered it, but um, is there a greater need now since the post-Me Too movement um, for advocacy for actors and actresses? Was it something that went unrecognized prior to the Me Too movement? Yeah, I mean, I think it went unrecognized in that there wasn't a position or a role for that. I know that um, I also come from a wardrobe background. So often the wardrobe uh, people were kind of pulled into that realm uh, in dealing with the garments or the modesty garments. Maybe someone who makeup who was working closely with the actors, but there wasn't a specific trained person. I also have mental health first aid, uh, sensitivity training. I've been a youth facilitator for four years. So I have um, this this built up skill set of how to do non violent communication, how to talk about these things with the actors, make them feel comfortable. It is, after all, a performance. It's not their real life. It's not, we're not tapping into their real sexual experience. We're trying to create what the character would be doing. Right. And mm. you see some of those scenes, there, there seems to be a, a tremendous connection um, with some of, between some of the actors in movies that sometimes we think they're actually having an affair, right? you know, mm. that, they, that they demonstrate their acting ability so incredibly well. Yeah. Um, Lady Gaga and um, Brad, my boyfriend, Brady, Bradley Cooper. Um, <laughs> a lot of people thought that they had such a connection, but uh-huh. it was actually such great acting and likely sure. people like you that can help that with that, with yeah. them with that intimacy. How much pressure does a woman face to keep the job and do what's mm. asked for her? So how much does that play in it? Is she worried that if she doesn't disrobe or take all of her clothes off or whatever scene in front of whomever, she may actually lose the job and she may have three kids at home that she needs to feed. 
Right. And I think that that's where this role comes into play in that, you know, when you as an actor sign your contract and you're saying, I'm willing to do X, Y, and Z, that changes day to day for specific actors. We go through a lot of intense personal mental things, maybe a divorce, maybe someone dies, maybe uh, other things that are impacting those choices that on the day you might have to change that completely. Um, And there has to be room for that fluidity so that that person feels safe. Um, And, you know, to speak to your, to this, to this chemistry that gets created, um, what we're also creating is uh, um, a system, a formula to create that intimacy and the freedom inside the acting so that there's the um, freedom, uh, safe, it's a safe place for dangerous things to happen rather than a dangerous place where only safe things can happen. It's one of the mottos that we kind of look at. Very interesting perspective. Yeah. And so consent applies uh, continuously throughout these process, exactly. throughout this process and these acting scenes as well. Do you ever have people turn down a scene and say, I'm just not going to do this and where that results in conflict? Certainly. Yep. Recently I worked on a project and an actor uh, was given the, the scene that was going to be proposed. The writers had created the scene already. Um, this came to the actor who, when they were hired, was not informed that there was going to be this intensity of a simulated sex scene and they said that they spoke to uh, the intimacy coordinator on that production and said I'm not okay with this Um, and that intimacy coordinator then becomes the mediator to the writers and the producers and saying this isn't okay with this actor we have to change the scene and we have to find a different way of of telling the story and that happens and so now there's there's that out and that actor doesn't feel like there is as much pressure um, and there's someone else there to kind of handle the politics of it as it were as well as the um, maybe the actor's agent. You know? Right. Now we have this idea that these Hollywood producers are, you know, uh, full of rage and commanding and controlling and demanding. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, oftentimes they're men <laughs> that, uh, and but they can be women as well mm-hmm. who can be extremely demanding. Yes. Um, and so how difficult is it to navigate that? And, and would they say, no, we absolutely need this particular scene to be acted out this way or played out this way, or we're not having them. If they yeah. weren't informed, you know, tough for them. See you later. On to the next one. Right. Well, and that's sort of where the best policies are coming in and that we're trying to have the intimacy coordinating position or that mindset to be applied even as soon as casting and as soon as having the writers aware of what the actors, um, you know, boundaries or are what they're consenting to. Right. So it, it kind of has to come into play at all different steps of the production. Um, and then hopefully, you know, that that's the other role that is now being um, sort of offered to the intimacy coordinator is to is to have veto over something happening on production. Last minute set is running behind. They have to get this shot that that the intimacy coordinator actually gets the power to say, no, we are not going to do this. It, it is at risk for this person's mental health and safety. Um, and we have to alter production in some way. That That is really important for everyone on set to feel like human beings, that they're being valued, that they're not just machines or automatons, uh, you know, performing. They're not robots. We have to really care. And I think my, my wish and my hope, and I see that kind of happening, is that when that role is on set and present, it means that the other people on the crew also feel valued as humans and that we're considering everybody's mental health and well-being, not just, you know, the lead actors doing this scene, but everybody. Right. What rose out of the Me Too movement was, were voices from women who felt compelled to take on 
positions in acting uh, mm-hmm. because they are so few and far between and they thought they would never get another opportunity. So they may have actually done some things that they didn't want to do but to get the job. Certainly. Um, and that pressure was put on mm-hmm. um, a lot of women and certainly men as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that do you think goes on today, uh, especially in, I imagine not every set has somebody like you, an intimacy coordinator. It's true. Um, the need for this work has boomed incredibly. Um, there are 14 certified intimacy coordinators in the world, um, uh, coordinators and directors, coordinators for film and TV, directors for um, theater. Um, and there are 20 apprentices currently with uh, the organization Intimacy Directors International. I am an assistant. I'm not quite yet an apprentice, um, but I'm working very closely with another team and I'm mentoring and I'm, I'm going to set with them and I'm being their assist. Um, so as I, as I train and, um, um, we're we're hoping. I mean, the the process for training is about two years or so, including a lot of other trainings. Um, and so we're hoping that we can we can s- kind of speed that up a little bit as much as we can and get those people trained up to take on those jobs as much as we can. Because given all the stage productions and the movies and the plays that are happening, exactly. the globe over fourteen is nothing. We have <laughs> no, a and long, they're tired and they're a little burnt I can out. Imagine, yeah, There's a long way. They have a long way to grow. Mm-hmm. We have a long way to grow and to go, especially. Yeah post Me Too movement. Well, thank you so much for the tremendous work that you're doing. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak on this. It's very important. Really appreciate. You're welcome. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, and talking about this. To my listeners, I am Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. As Canada has committed to eliminating hepatitis C by the year 2030, an innovative new program is launching in British Columbia to screen and treat a vulnerable population group for hepatitis C virus. People who inject drugs, whether it's current or former. It is estimated that 70.6% of people who inject drugs have hepatitis C virus, and that's versus a prevalence of 0.8% in the Canadian population. Dr. Edward Tam of Lair Centre in Vancouver is set to pilot the very first program in British Columbia to identify, treat, and cure hepatitis C in this very vulnerable population. Working with local physician Dr. Jay Wartman of the Royal Oak Clinic, up to 170 opiate agonist therapy patients will be screened for hepatitis C and up to 40% will be treated this year. Thank you so much, Dr. Tam, for joining me on the line this evening. Thanks a lot for having me. So this is a very interesting program, an incredible initiative. Can you tell me uh, how this is going to play out and why it's important? Sure. Um, so hepatitis C is actually a really common problem uh, in Canada. Uh, you know, in Canada, we estimate about 250,000 individuals are actually affected by this condition, a virus that predominantly affects the liver. And uh, the World Health Organization has developed an initiative that Canada has signed on to to try to eliminate hepatitis C virus uh, by the year 2030. And so right now across Canada, um, a lot of people are developing interest and looking into opportunities to, you know, see what we can do different so we can meet this goal of eliminating uh, this condition by 2030. And one of the things that we're doing is trying to identify populations which are enriched uh, for being affected by the condition, you know, so-called priority populations, and trying to think of maybe innovative ways that we can uh, address uh, the hepatitis C epidemic uh, within these populations. And then if you look in Canada, you know, some of the priority populations that are out there, certainly persons who inject or use drugs would be one of them. Uh, Baby boomers are also disproportionately affected by hepatitis C. So we're starting to see different initiatives uh, 
uh, popping up, and this is one of them to try to address this epidemic. And what are the issues with hepatitis C? What are some of the problems that people will face if it's left untreated? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. The tricky thing about hepatitis C is that although there's many people infected and affected by this condition, for a lot of individuals, they remain asymptomatic, especially in early stages of the disease. So there's actually a lot of people in Canada who are living with this condition, and they actually don't know it. It's because they feel well. But over time, uh, hepatitis C viral infection uh, can result in damage to the liver and the development of scar tissue or what we call fibrosis in the liver. And eventually, this can progress to uh, liver cirrhosis. And from that point, an individual is at risk for manifestations of liver failure, liver cancer. And so it really can cause a host of, of problems. And the best way to get at it, of course, is to identify it early and and to cure an individual as it is a curable uh, chronic disease. And somebody who has cirrhosis of the liver or liver cancer may actually require a liver transplant. Is that correct? It's true. Um, And when you look at, you know, indications for liver transplantation, you know, traditionally hepatitis C has been top of the list. One of the big things that has changed now with really effective and safe medications that we can use to cure hepatitis C virus is we're actually seeing um, the need for liver transplantation for hepatitis C as the indication dropping. And that's a good thing. That means that we're making an impact with these medications. And hopefully what we'll continue to see is that we can address this condition before it gets to a disease severity that necessitates, you know, further intervention such as liver transplantation. Right. What are some of the barriers to treatment for those individuals who have been diagnosed with hepatitis C virus infection? What would be some of the barriers there? You know, speaking, um, you know, just in general, I think, first of all, unfortunately, it's it's still the truth that there's a stigma attached, I think, to to hepatitis C. And so for a lot of individuals, uh, I think um, even those who are living with the condition, they're diagnosed and they're aware. The stigma surrounding it in certain situations makes it difficult for them to feel comfortable, I think, reaching out and being connected and connected to care. Um, The other uh, big barrier, as I mentioned or alluded to earlier, is that because people can be asymptomatic, there's a large proportion of individuals out there who just don't know they have the condition. And if you don't know, uh, then you don't know, uh, of course, to seek uh, medical care for it. And so one of the really important things is to also talk about screening initiatives to identify individuals who have this condition who may not know it. You know, uh, the stigma, I'm curious about why the stigma, and I think it's also very interesting in hepatitis C infection because uh, people may not know they have it, so they may be judging somebody else or hurting somebody else, and when, when we stigmatize people or medical conditions, we're actually hurting other people, but a person could have it themselves, and, and they've been going around judging people. So why the stigma, though? Absolutely. You know, it's. Uh, I think it's a complex question in a way. I think that, you know, number one, uh, people think about hepatitis C and they may focus on certain risk factors for having acquired uh, the disease. And obviously these are important and we recognize them. Uh, persons who use or inject drugs, we do recognize that the large majority of new infections occurs in this group. And absolutely that's a population that we want to help and to focus on. But we also have to recognize that, say, you take a group uh, say baby boomers, and we recognize that the prevalence of hepatitis C amongst baby boomers, that's individuals born between 1945 and 1975, is sufficiently high that in Canada we suggest that anybody born between 1945 and 1975 
get tested on at least one occasion for hepatitis C. And what we understand is that the prevalence of hepatitis C in that population is is much higher than it is in the adult population in Canada as a whole. So I think a lot of the stigma that's developed is is unwarranted and uh, certainly when I'm, um, you know, speaking in public or speaking to patients here in the office, you know, the most important thing, I think, is to focus on what we can do uh, about a condition we identify as a curable condition. And so I really hope that over time the, the focus shifts from um, stigmatizing it, and I think we're starting to see that now, and I hope the focus shifts more to addressing the problem, which we're well-equipped to do right now. Now, how about the general practitioners, the family doctors out there? Do they have the expertise and the confidence to prescribe hepatitis C virus infection treatment, or what's their experience? I think we're seeing this shift uh, dramatically uh, for the better. Um, if you think about hepatitis C therapies maybe 10 years ago, the concern was that they were very complex, um, they didn't work very well, and they are very side effect prone. And typically, treatment would be under the auspices of a liver specialist or a gastroenterologist. Now we're seeing more and more physicians become involved in hepatitis C treatment. And the reason for that is we're starting to recognize, I think, the magnitude of the issue. And also treatments that we have are much simpler. They work almost always. These are pill-based therapies that are very simple to take for short duration between 8 and 12 weeks. And so we're starting to see primary care physicians uh, treating hepatitis C. And I hope... Uh, that we'll continue to see more and more. And certainly that's the focus of the current initiative that I'm working with uh, 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 with Dr. Jay Wartman. That's wonderful. And it sounds as though compliance uh, would be very good on the part of the patients because that's always very important as well. Dr. Edward Tam is my guest. He's of the Lair Center in Vancouver, set to pilot the very first program in BC to identify, treat, and cure hepatitis C virus infection. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Tam. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. I am here with Genevieve Bonnet. She is a partner in the Toronto office of McKinsey and Company. She advises public sector organizations on strategy, innovation, and complex transformational programs to improve value realization. They have just authored a report about women in the workforce effectively, and we are chatting about some of the progress and some of the paralysis that will occur as well as women progress and need to transform um, as it relates to, in particular, automation. Uh, Genevieve, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, so we're, it was a great uh, talk at the Women Deliver Conference, which is where we met in Vancouver this week. So uh, there was one comment as you delivered the results of the report about how women are five times more likely to have to prove their competency in the workforce. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, Although we've made a lot of progress in terms of like closing uh, the gender gap, I mean, there are numerous different sort of hurdles that are still kind of in play. And it starts with really men and women working together on sort of facing those hurdles, bringing, you know, to uh, the conscious, like some of those things that, you know, we don't necessarily are kind of in the backs of our mind and do result in, in fact, like you know, somebody being on the 
receiving end of demeaning comments. So I think the, the way to close the gap is to take concrete action uh, to be uh, eliminating those kinds of things in, in the workplace. So if you look at our report, there are n numerous different sort of key priorities that we lay out, uh, examples of actions that can be taken uh, in order to reduce uh, biases and in order to kind of reduce some of those uh, things that can happen in how men and, and women interact in the workplace. And to me, it's a little bit about the lack of confidence women may feel as they enter the workforce or they're, they're working daily, uh, thinking that uh, there's this proof that they have to, you know, they have to prove themselves. So that means they're going to be working harder, they're going to be trying harder, they're going to be staying later. And not only do they are they working outside of the home, they go back to another job quite often uh, inside of the home. So how much pressure is put on women in the workforce and, in, and just in their daily lives? Uh, yes, it is true that uh, it is still a reality that women uh, do more than half of the unpaid care work. Uh, and what that really means is, you know, when they leave their job, they do uh, have a second job that they have to, uh, to do. Uh, I, you know, that, that gap is closing, but similarly to, uh, you know, what we do with organizations and setting up roadmap, we have to think about more holistically what kind of interventions could be put in place in order to make sure that we reduce that burden on women and create a more of a, you know, level playing field in terms of how men and women share uh, the unpaid care work. And then there's the third job, and that is access to the Internet. And men appear to have 33% more access to the Internet than women do. And this is their third job in terms of increasing their skills or gaining skills to to advance in the workplace. And and so women are actually uh, really underserved and, and are handicapped effectively uh, in terms of advancing in the workplace, especially as it relates to automation, because about one in four women and one in four men will lose their job or, or will change. It will change by 2030. And um, what do you think of uh, automation as it relates to women's jobs? Uh, well, first, I would like to just mention that uh, the uh, report that I co-authored is a Canadian report, and the stats around uh, having men having more access to the internet was really part of our global future of work report. So, uh, I mean, very interestingly, Canada has been really leading in terms of uh, you know, closing the gender gap from, you know, globally. And I think those stats would be sort of quite similarly, very different in terms of, uh, Canada. Um, you know, th that being said, I mean, I think we have an opportunity to really create programs that will, uh, create transparency around the future jobs that will, you know, be part of our economy. Uh, thinking really specifically about what we need to do in order to upskill women and transition them effectively into those new jobs. And that includes like making sure that we uh, create program to attract uh, women into STEM programs, for example, and then meaningfully like transition them into the workplace. So I mean, there are tremendous opportunity in like, you know, sort of any major change program uh, it, it, it's, it, we need to sort of establish that roadmap uh, and uh, track and measure what will get done in order to kind of be able to move the dial. Uh, it's uh, one of the stats was uh, that 35 percent of women have a have higher education as compared with 29 percent of men. Yet we don't seem to progress uh, accordingly. Uh, women are still behind. And, and what do you think it's going to take for women to advance in the workplace? 
It is numerous different sort of like uh, initiatives that need to be put in play, but it does really start with uh, making sure that organization have uh, understand sort of the business case. Uh, and the great news is that you know, with, uh, if we compare to our 2017 research, there are three times more companies right now that have uh, a business case and 80% of the companies in Canada have indicated that gender equality is a top priority for them. Uh, but then it, com- it goes back to men and women working together organizations setting up like very specific roadmap around uh, the things that can make sure that we not only bring in an equal number of uh, women into our organization, but we also help them advance uh, through the various layers of the organization. Uh, and that, you know, does require things like, for example, establishing women in leadership program, uh, so that we understand what is really specific about the advancement of a woman from a managerial position to a VP to a CEO position, for example. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, one last question. How much do you think women supporting women? And we were both at the Women Deliver Conference 19, 2019, and it was amazing. And there appeared to be a lot of women supporting women, but we don't necessarily always see that in the workplace. And in fact, some, some women may step on other women, if you will, uh, to advance their career. And, and we don't have the mentoring. And so what do you think are some of the steps women can do to support other women to advance in their career and make the world better for women? women, especially in Canada? Well, the great news is that uh, in our study, what we do see is that uh, there are numerous uh, women that are sponsoring, uh, you know, women and to help them in investment of their career. In fact, um, you know, women are more likely to be sponsoring other women. And uh, so, I mean, that's, I think that's of tremendous news. I actually felt uh, last night in the room, like sort of that collegiality, I, it seemed like we were like sort of all one voice, frankly. Uh, but I, I think, uh, you know, the opportunity is really to make sure that we increase the number of men who are going to be sponsoring women because there just aren't enough women at the top in order to be able to sort of really move things uh, and, and, and accelerate that sponsorship. Uh, so I think the opportunity is is really, again, to kind of engage the men in the discussion as opposed to just relying on women supporting women. You make a great point. You hear that, guys? Uh, I am with Genevieve Bonet. She is with McKinsey Global Institute, co-authored the report, The Future of Women at Work, Transitions in the Age of Automation. I am Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.